My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrads, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze the lack of attention on global conflicts through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episodes. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this to topic today? Because, I mean, we're talking a lot about conf global conflicts in the last few years. Hi, Dario. And yes, we are. We do talk uh, a lot about uh, conflicts, but speci very specific conflicts. Um, two years ago, one and a half year ago, we were obsessed with the war in Ukraine and Russia. Um, at the moment, er all, every newspaper is filled with articles about uh, Gaza, about Israel and the Palestinians. And... The problem with that is that there are an awful lot of conflicts that do not get our attention, that do not get covered. And if you were to ask anyone in the streets, hey, can you name these conflicts? They have no clue about, right? So we, what, what happens is that we focus on certain hypes, Ukraine, Gaza, and we ignore very serious human suffering elsewhere in the world. That creates an enormous imbalance and has lots of negative consequences as a result. And what are the facts? An armed conflict is a contested incom incompatibility that concerns government and or territory where the use of an armed force between two parties, of which at least one is the government of a state, results in at least 25 battle-related deaths in one calendar year. Deaths and displacement from these armed conflicts are trending up across the world. While this trend has hit many regions, the Sahel and Sub-Saharan Africa region have been hit especially hard with the conflicts in Sudan, Mali, the Central African Republic and the Democratic Republic of Congo displacing over 10 million people. Millions more in those nations are living below the poverty line in near starvation conditions as a result. In the Middle East... Yemen's civil war has killed almost 400,000 people in the last decade, and Kurdish groups continue their struggle in Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Syria, while the civil war in Syria is still taking place. Violence also continues in Afghanistan, as groups such as the Islamic State of Khorasan and the remnants of the Northern Alliance fight the Taliban's rule. The world's largest refugee camp remains in Bangladesh, where almost a million Rohingya people have fled from Myanmar. The year 2022 saw the most deaths from political violence, over 230,000, since the Rwandan genocide in 1994. While the 2023 data has not been finalized, the year is shaping up to continue that trend. What is the bubble? I mean, before we talk about the bubble, um, the list I just read out in the fact sheet is obviously not comprehensive, right? And uh, we're going to highlight some of the other conflicts that the world is simply not paying attention to at the moment uh, later on in the category, what's the international relations context. Um, but let's start with the bubble on this, I mean, particularly the Western bubble, of course. Why is it that we care so much about Israel-Palestine and about Russia-Ukraine, but that we haven't heard about um, anything happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the last, I don't know, three years, despite the fact that since 1996, approximately 6 billion people have died. 
and many, many more millions displaced as well, right? And that I think that that leads to the first aspect of this problem and sort of to answer your question, how do we decide which conflicts we care about and which conflicts we don't care about, is that um, conceptually we're still a little bit beholden to the idea of a traditional conflict of two armed groups or maybe more than two armed groups shooting at each other and um, sort of fighting a Napoleonic war, if you like, with, with clearly defined armies. And that is the case with uh, Russia and Ukraine, but in very few other situations over the past 25 years have conflicts looked like that, right? Uh, these traditional, almost Napoleonic types of wars are hardly ever fought anymore and conflicts are way more complex and less about actual military groups shooting at each other and much more about... Uh, displacement of people, um, crime being inflicted on people, sort of being weaponized to achieve political aims. And that kind of conflict is harder for us to connect to because it's too complex, right? It's not as easy as the good guys and the bad guys. It's not as easy as uh, winners and losers. Mm, uh, this goes back all the way uh, to military and technological changes in 20th century. Uh, people like Mary Calder wrote about this in the 1990s when it came to the wars in the Balkans. Uh, she wrote a book, New Wars, which I recommend to everyone, um, about this changing nature and the increased complexity, and therefore we cannot define good guys and bad guys. So that is the first reason why so many conflicts go under the radar, because if we cannot emotionally connect to it, then um, we kind of ignore it, psychologically speaking. Now... and. And the reason why we emotionally connect to different conflicts, I mean, I'm, I assume are very you know psychological, but I immediately think about the emotional component, right? So this is something that we've discussed in the past few episodes when we talked about Israel-Palestine, that for, for me uh, as, as a German, right, with the history that Germany has with regards to, um, with, with regards to, you know, <laughs> the, the Holocaust, um, there's an emotional connection and emotional involvement to what's happening right now there. Um, I, I assume emotional connection kind of plays a role here. Yes, that's exactly what happens. You have some kind of historical trauma or some kind of historical, uh, historical awareness. And then if something new happens in that situation or in that region or with that group of people, you are automatically connected to that. That makes sense in many ways. I mean, we connect in our daily lives to people and to dynamics that we're already familiar with. Uh, and yeah, of course, Israel triggers a very specific emotional response to Europeans. Um, that is one of the reasons why Europe, certainly a country like Germany, but also countries like the Netherlands, find it so difficult to objectively analyze what's happening in Gaza. But it also means that when we see, as we've discussed in the past, when we see Jewish people die, we somehow have a bias, we have a overemphasis of that, and we have less of an emphasis on Palestinians dying because we don't have that historical trigger. Now, the problem is that with most populations in the world, and therefore most conflicts in the world, we don't have a strong emotional connection, despite Europeans, from a Western bubble perspective, having clearly a responsibility for the state of the world almost everywhere at the moment because of colonization and after colonization, Western dominance. But we don't connect emotionally to people in 
Southern Africa. Um, South Africa is slightly different f- because we've all connected to Mandela and apartheid. But Southern Africa, or Central Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Central African Republic, we don't even know where it is on the map, let alone care or, or connect to the people who are suffering every day because of conflict there. And uh, so if I may call them right triggers, so you have this emotional response. I mean, there's also the historical one, as you as you already outlined. Um, and then there's obviously practical implications. So um, there are, I mean, right, Germany is one of those countries that receives a lot of refugees. I haven't seen a lot of refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo. There have been a lot of refugees from Ukraine, from Syria, from Afghanistan. So those are conflicts that I will then be a bit more invested in, if you could call it that, simply because there are practical implications for where I live and for my life. And the litmus test here is to just go into the city center of whichever western city you live in and ask people in the street, are you aware of it? And if you ask them, are you aware that there is violence or that there has been a war in Syria, then they will say yes because of exactly what you're pointing out, refugees, and it has been covered in the media because of that. Uh, Are you aware of any conflicts in Central Africa? Probably they'll look at you blankly without actually knowing what you're you're talking about. This uh, is very, very clear and obvious. These practical implications beyond any emotional or historical connections are the thing that drives... Uh, media and that drives consumers. Now, you could even argue that in some cases there are conflicts that the their existence helps us practically. Right now, this becomes a little bit conspiratorial and this becomes a little bit complex again, but there is a real geopolitical reason why the West doesn't worry too much about violence in certain areas because it allows resource extraction much more easily or it allows geopolitical games much more easily and as a result governments do not have a reason to point out the problems in those countries do not have a reason to try to stop the violence in those countries media doesn't cover it and it never reaches the homes of the average news consumer what's the international relations context And looking into the international relations uh, perspective, our new category, uh, since uh, which which we introduced last week, um, where we will write, we will take this podcast a little bit out of just the Western bubble perspective and introduce a bit more of that international, uh, particularly international relations perspective. And here, I think it makes sense to talk about some of the conflicts that we are not necessarily aware of or that are not on our radar screen. And a good indicator here for me Um, at least when it comes to the Western bubble, is uh, the newspaper that I read the most simply because um, I, I'm subscribed to it. And that's a German newspaper, right? The Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. And especially in the when you look at it on the online version, you see obviously there, there's, uh, right, in, in the different tabs uh, that you can open, uh, you can see the homepage. Okay, then usually there's politics, economy, finances, uh, you know, culture. But since last year, we kind of had, uh, or since two years ago by now, we kind of had Ukraine added. And now there's Israel added. So this kind of tells me, right, these are the conflicts I should care about, right? So there's Israel and Ukraine. However, some of the conflicts that are not on there um, is, for example, anything that's happening in and around Myanmar, right? So in Myanmar, you currently have a lot of armed violence between the government and between local militias, 
struggling for power. That's something that I haven't seen a lot in, in Western media, uh, barely. Um, and obviously, but this is something that has been a bit more prominent in the media, you had the situation with the Rohingya, with that ethnic group that was kind of kicked out of Myanmar with a lot of violence, a lot of villages burned down, a lot of people killed, and nearly one million people fled to a neighboring country, Bangladesh. And as a result, you will see, obviously, the Bangladesh press covering this. Um, another country that does cover this is China, because they feel direct consequences of the conflict, but very few to almost none articles in your traditional Western media. It's too far away. It doesn't affect us. We have no emotional connection to the country, uh, despite having some colonial responsibility, right? Uh, there is very, very little interest in such a thing. Yet, when it comes to human suffering, it's very hard to make the case that human suffering in Myanmar is less than that in um, Palestine or than that in other parts of uh, the world like Ukraine, right? It, 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 you, that utilitarian assessment isn't necessarily pointing simply towards Israel and the Palestinians and isn't simply pointing towards Moscow and Kiev. It is pointing towards a place like Myanmar and many other countries where there are everyday people not just dying, but struggling to get by, um, uh, children without food, without education and all those kinds of things. Uh, we talked about this last week that uh, there's an overemphasis on how many people have died. Um, but then there's also a, a large number, right? Usually triple of, of that, of how many people got injured. And that those are also lives significantly altered, aka destroyed. And the same applies to displaced people, right? Uh, it's, I mean, yes, you are alive, you might not be injured, but your life is full of hardship. As you said, there is a lack of most likely food, of most basic resources, of hygiene, of education, of, of a future, right? I think we have this tendency to especially international relations, maybe to protect ourselves, to kind of dehumanize in that sense, right? To, uh, to, to cut, uh, to yeah, just block ourselves off from the conflict so that we can talk about this with a more neutral stance. But we're not only talking about people suffering, we're also talking about futures being taken away, right? These could be one million dreams, right? One million dreams of people to fulfill their life uh, to the fullest that are being taken away. And, and as a journalist, that is harder to cover, that nuance makes it tougher to write an article about. And as a news consumer, as someone who maybe reads a newspaper or watches the news uh, on TV, it is harder to care about emotionally, not because the suffering is less, but because it is it connects less to our idea of the traditional conflict, right? what I referred to earlier, if someone is being shot by a military group, then it is something that, that touches us immediately because we have a idea of what it looks like. If we read about a person or a family being displaced, we can't really relate to that because we don't know what that looks like in reality. And therefore our emotional response is much less. And yet I think any serious person um, looking not just at, at, at Myanmar, but let's look at another conflict, the DRC, where even in the past couple of years, uh, millions of people have been displaced. Any person looking at such a conflict will say, hang on, um, this is genuine, deep, deep agony for those people. This is not <clears throat> a mild problem. These lives are being destroyed 
despite them not being killed, a whole generation of children in the Democratic Republic of Congo is, is basically growing up without a future because of this. Uh, the, the suffering is clear. I, I think I think it's almost a second generation by now, right? Because it's been happening for for twenty something years. And here, a quick shout out to to a friend of mine, uh, Gabby, who kind of, I mean, I was uh, aware of of the suffering in the DRC. However, I was not aware of the number of people that have died through this conflict since nineteen nineteen sixty, and that's six million. That's a large, large number. I mean, and maybe the problem here is that it's spread out over twenty years, right? I mean, it's. It's maybe more difficult to care about people who maybe there's, I don't know, um, an incident where 200 people are killed in one day. But then there's also these other effects of conflict, such as starvation, such as, I don't know, uh, landmines or any right, any other civilian casualties. And if this is kind of spread out over the course of 20 years over different incidents, then we don't really care about in our day to day. But it's six million people in the last 25 years. Yes, and if you if you then look at the reality um, of how statistics are being compiled, these are six million people directly as a result of the violence. However, um, a family being kicked out of their homes and being told to go to another part of the country or basically having to flee to another part of the country because the violence is just too dangerous in their hometown, um, someone then dying on the road to that other place doesn't necessarily show up in the statistics, right? That is not um, the kind of thing that we're measuring when it comes to conflict, or at least it's very difficult to measure when it comes to conflict. And as a result, once again, our emotional response is less to that because then we think, hey, well, people also die in Germany and Spain because of traffic accidents. Yes, but that is not exactly the same thing right but that is our 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 internal sort of defense mechanism goes oh well yeah of course people die because of accidents or some people die because of um, um a fire but people don't realize that once you are displaced once you are on the run from violence then it's much more likely that those events will happen to you um in the beginning, we mentioned these different triggers, right? Uh, an emotional connection, the historical connection, or the practical implications. One of the countries that the West was practically implemented uh, in, over the last 20 years was Afghanistan. Um, but I believe that since we've left, or well, we, since the West has left um, Afghanistan, uh, or at least the military, I think there has been a, a very sudden disconnect from the country and its people. Um, I think the last the last thing people will remember is that chaotic evacuation. But since then, I mean, we've talked about it uh, a month ago uh, when Israel-Palestine erupted uh, on the 7th of October. There was a big earthquake where four to 5,000 people died in Afghanistan. But we're also talking about enormous suffering, uh, again, with displaced people, <clears throat> where now you see a lot of people fled to Pakistan. Pakistan now has decided to sent them back, basically kicking them out, sending them back towards the Taliban. So you have that suffering on the one hand, right, with displaced people, refugees. But on the other hand, you also have another source of violence, of armed violence in Afghanistan that we aren't necessarily aware of. So there has been, since um, the invasion in 2002 of Western forces, there have been multiple conflicts. Um, we often have it portrayed in the media as one conflict that ended when uh, Joe Biden decided to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, namely a conflict between a Western-supported, if you like, puppet government in Kabul 
and then the Taliban um, fighting back against that. But in reality, in depending on the region, there were sort of mini wars being fought out, right? And once structural war that has not been covered, even when we cared about Afghanistan, was the war in the north, where you have northern warlords in Afghanistan fighting either Western forces or the Taliban, depending on who is threatening their territory. This is related to drugs trade. This is related to geopolitical interests um, from Moscow, where Moscow supports uh, certain, uh, certain warlords. And the violence there continues right now as we speak. But that is not being covered. Why not? Uh, because it no longer involves the West. It is no longer a clearly identifiable, like, good versus evil narrative. And Afghanistan is interesting because of another reason, namely that before the invasion of 2002, Afghanistan wasn't really on our radar screens either. We didn't really care about it in the West. It, it wasn't very relevant because it didn't affect us much. Why did we start caring about it? Because our troops were sent there and all of a sudden... It was our people dying because they had been sent to fight the Taliban. And all of a sudden the media jumps as, at that as a global conflict. Whereas the only reason why people in the West paid attention to it was because there were US, British, Dutch soldiers shooting at Afghan Afghanis, right? Uh, now that those Western soldiers are withdrawn and are no longer there, all of a sudden Afghanistan goes back to its ignored place in history from a Western perspective. Another conflict which uh, quickly popped up on our radar, um, and when I say our radar, right, I'm talking about the international media, but just as quickly disappeared was uh, Armenia. I mean, we've, we've seen the violence in Armenia uh, right in 2020 and also in the early 1990s, um, but then this conflict was basically over, right, uh, a, a few months ago when, when Azerbaijan kind of fully won Uh, at this conflict. And we very quickly saw 100,000 to 150,000 people being displaced, being sent away from the region that Azerbaijan and Armenia were fighting over, Nagorno-Karabakh, being sent to Armenia. Yeah, I think there was a sufficient attention for three days, but then just like that, gone. And, and again, we're talking about 150,000 people fleeing. Yes, and there's an interesting little parallel between Armenia and Afghanistan here, namely that I mentioned before that we have to have an emotional trigger to care about a conflict, but we also have emotional, if you like, obstacles to not care about a conflict. And right now we don't want to care about Afghanistan because of our kind of sense of failure and also questions about why did we actually fight 20 years of civil war? Why did we even start that? Uh, the Afghan people as a result suffered. With respect to Arme Armenia, we have a level of discomfort in the West because we feel that there's something wrong about the situation of 150,000 people being displaced, but there's also very little that European governments have been doing about it or felt that they were capable of doing about it because this was technically within Azerbaijani territory, Azeri territory, and Uh, European governments were very much divided on how to react. So then the emotional trigger is lacking because your average European has no specific connection to Armenia or, or Azerbaijan. And on top of that, there is a reason not to care about it because it makes us feel uncomfortable because of our lack of action. Mm. Yeah, lack of action, I think that uh, classifies it, it very well. Um, there's also some lack of action, you could say, in Sudan, but also in the Central African Republic. 
Um, and I'm going to mention them here together simply because uh, we need to get through this list and this list is very long. Um, each of these conflicts deserves to be spoken about individually because just in the Central African Republic in the last few years you've had 1.25 million people uh, displaced, right? That's a lot. And in Sudan, um, which is maybe a bit m even more of the West's fault, uh, you have 5.7 million people uh, being displaced just this year since uh, since April 2023, when when kind of the violence between gov well, well within the government forces uh, flared up again. Yes, and S Sudan is is one of those countries that um, was relatively. Uh, stable around the capital, at least when it came to Westphalian governance, while there was a dictator in place, Omar Bashir, um, there were there were there were accusations against the dictator of um, violence, and, and and there was violence in, for example, Darfur. There was uh, before the independence oppression in South Sudan, but that fitted our narrative nicely of a dictator oppressing people. Like genocide in Darfur was a very common. Um, theme in Western media because that allows us to think in terms of good versus evil because we all know that dictators are evil. Now that that dictator is gone, all of a sudden the narrative becomes much more complex and we can't pinpoint who we want to support and who we are against. It's way more nuanced and uh, there are no good guys and there are no directly bad guys there. And we would kind of have to acknowledge with respect to Sudan that having a dictator creates some level of stability, just like it did in Libya or in Iraq with uh, Gaddafi and with Saddam Hussein, right? But that is something that makes us feel uncomfortable. That is something we don't really want to analyze because we want to believe that democracy is always the answer. As a result, we ignore it. But these are huge numbers. Now, on the Central African Republic, there's one extra additional ironic thing. Most news articles, I didn't do a statistical analysis, so you know, I haven't counted them myself, but it seemed as if most news articles that have discussed the Central African Republic over the past two years or so have done so worrying about the Wagner group, the Russians being active in the Central African Republic, as if that is the problem, right? As if the problem is simply having the evil Russians being active in a country we, we know nothing about. Whereas, of course, the violence was not caused by Russians. The violence has existed for a long time. And that is something that we cannot relate to because we do not understand it once again. Mm -hmm. You already mentioned Libya, 1.4 million internally displaced people since 2011, since that evil, right, quote-unquote, evil dictator was, was ousted by the West. And, and talking, talking about uh, having an emotional blockade or obstacle, thinking about that, right, because we all kind of know, anyone who knows a little bit about Libya knows that that violence, those 1.4 million people you mentioned, um, and uh, essentially continuous civil war since the fall of Gaddafi was essentially caused by Western action. It was caused by Europeans together with the Obama administration deciding that Gaddafi's time was up without any plan of what had to happen after his fall. So we get rid of Gaddafi and that throws the country into chaos. It throws the country into civil war. We know that that's kind of our fault, but we don't like to re we don't want to realize that. So we move on and we completely ignore it, including when then on top of the civil war that we kind of caused, there is an earthquake in Libya and still we don't really care about it because we don't want to think about it. We don't want to acknowledge the suffering of the Libyan people. And 
and there's many more examples like this. I mean, we can also throw in Mali, right? Uh, close to 400,000 people uh, displaced uh, in the West, well, the United Nations, but also France and, and Germany uh, and the EU being very active there. And this list goes on, right? It goes on with many more countries. Um, and then we, we haven't even spoken about some of the other categories, right, where, where there is armed violence uh, taking place. I mean, a large, lots of places in, in Latin America uh, where this is taking place. If you wanted to continue this list with people dying, right? Um, I mean, I don't know whether it would fall under the definition that I read out in the beginning uh, by the Uppsala University. You could even throw the United States in here, right? A lot of people die each year in the United States through armed violence um, by being shot. And that leads to the question, what is it that you actually care about? Do you actually care about the moral problem of human suffering? Like we see deep human suffering in all those places, even in our own societies to a certain extent, of course, but certainly uh, around the world. Do we care about genuine human suffering or do we care about the hype do we care about the drama that we can connect to? Is it about our emotional states that we care about? Like we all care about Israel and Palestine almost as if it's entertainment. And I'm not saying this lightly. I mean it in the sense of we emotionally connect to it almost as if it's some kind of Hollywood film or something like that. Or do we actually want to emphasize the fact that the world is a dark place for literally billions of people? And is that something that we want to do something about? And I'm afraid that the answer is mostly that we want to be caught up in a hype, in that kind of bubble, in that kind of entertainment, because it provides us with the emotional clarity and moral clarity that we pretend exists, rather than actually wanting to make the world a better place and reducing the suffering that is taking place as we speak. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? There is a lot of a lot of suffering, as you just mentioned. Um, and I mean, so there's obviously right this huge amount of damage, um, which is on the one hand being created. And I think that this is interesting. Um, on the one hand, you have this damage and the suffering created through a hype. I think we can see this right now with Israel and Palestine. I think we could also see this with Russia, Ukraine, where the increasing amount of attention on these specific conflicts. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has a stake in it. Everyone wants to exert pressure on a government to do X uh, like or exert pressure on a government to do an, another thing. Um, that hype is creating more suffering because it's ultimately standing in the way of, of any form of resolution. Yes, and this is one of those issues that I struggle with um when it comes to speaking to students at university, right? Uh, students, they see, in this case, um, very much the violence in Gaza, and they care about it deeply. Uh, they want to somehow contribute, and they believe that contributing is choosing a site and then adding to the hype by basically fighting a proxy war online, on Twitter, on social media, and all that. And that gives them a sense of not just belonging, but also of purpose. Like, hey, if as long as enough of us add to the hype and contribute to clarifying who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, then somehow the lives of the population we care about, in this case, either the Israelis or the Palestinians, will be better. And 
unfortunately, it's the opposite, right? That kind of war that is being fought on social media, that kind of position taking of every single student and every single uh, voice on Twitter and elsewhere only exacerbates the problem and it only continues the violence. This is a very, very difficult issue to explain to students because they equate doing nothing with not caring. And as a result, they want to do something. What do they do? They go on Twitter and they add to the hype. Because not caring is also bad. I mean, and it does, I mean, so this we see with all the conflicts that we've just listed and the many more that we haven't, where we as the West, we do not care about conflicts, you know, that are not as close to us. And maybe, you know, ah, we have caused them, maybe, ah, let's see, oh, some of, the, some of the conflicts may have been caused by the West. Oh, let's look the other way. We're very busy with these two conflicts that we have in front of our door right here. That also creates damage. Indeed, and, and that is where that separation is so important. So the first step has to be about human suffering, has to be caring. And I mean that from a very basic moral human perspective, right? If you don't care about human suffering around you, then you're going against the, the morality that we've built up in our civilizations. We should care about human suffering around us. We should connect to that and we should educate ourselves on that we need to know what is going on we need to have an awareness of what's going on not just in israel or palestine but also elsewhere however what we then do and that's where it becomes damaging that's where it becomes destructive is we then take it to a new level and then we say okay now i care and now i have to do something and then that doing something actually make things worse um, this goes a little bit back to a, an article that I wrote that we mentioned in the past. I wrote it at the time uh, relating to COVID, which was the art of doing nothing, right? You can deeply care about something, but still realize that doing nothing is the most productive option. And if you do do something, explain to yourself, know how it actually helps rather than hurts. Unfortunately, that is not a process that we observe in today's hyper emotional online world and as a result everyone jumping into the conflict actually contributes to the conflict well we also record an episode on this on the art of doing nothing um and this is incredibly difficult and i mean also while listening to you but also trying to listen to myself at the same time that's incredibly conflicting because so on the one hand right we should care about every every single conflict that's happening I, I understand people who don't want to care because it's too much. Right now, the world is just an incredibly dark place. But then as soon as you care, you immediately want to do something. And the question is, okay, what do you do, right? Um, do I pressure my government for military intervention? Do I pressure my government for increasing humanitarian aid? Do I donate something to an organization? Do I call out on social media and say, everyone has to care about this? You need to care. Um I'm not sure whether there's a right a very a very clear path of what of what you can do, and and it often amazes me and completely recognizing the complexity here, of course, that people are struggling with. But it amazes me as someone who, for the past twenty years, has been a professional analyst of international relations, who has worked, for example, specifically on the Israel-Palestinian conflict for a number of years when it was my job to specialize into it. Um, it amazes me how quickly people seem to be confident in knowing what the right action is and what the right approach is. How confident people are about 
tweeting out or claiming that if only the world were to follow their advice, everything would be better. And I, as someone who's worked on these things for 20 years, I don't know these answers. So how do they know if, they, if they've if they only read a few articles in the newspaper, how do they jump to those conclusions? How are they so certain that they know what is right and what is wrong, right? It, it goes back to our basic human psychology of over of being overconfident with respect to our moral positions and our analytical capabilities. Of course, awareness in general and understanding, genuine and under, genuine understanding in the sense of knowing what is going on and looking at facts and trying to um, research, prop, not judge, but research the facts of a conflict, then eventually in the long term, probably leads to better results as for society as a whole. Because if enough people within society actually know what's going on, then that will automatically push our governments and our leadership to take action that is consistent with it. But that is very different from taking sides and simplifying a conflict into good versus evil. And what now? So what do we do now? Um... Do we, I don't know, do we all spend one hour every day reading up on a new conflict? Um, I mean, that's, uh, you, you would be very busy for the next uh, few weeks. Um, do we, do we close our eyes? Because I can, I can honestly understand this, right? Do we just close our eyes and say, you know what, my life is difficult as it is. I don't need to engage or, or inform myself about the suffering of others. I mean, can we even close our eyes? Is that possible in today's world? It's becoming harder, right? It's becoming harder in a world that is ever smaller in terms of technology, in terms of uh, cause and effect. Increasingly, a conflict on the other side of the globe will have an impact on your society. It's, It's becoming harder and harder to actually close your eyes and not be aware of anything. Um... Having said that, that does put pressure on us to, on the one hand, understand better how the world works, work, and but that is hard work, right? Understanding, analyzing is hard work, and learn how to be less judgmental, learn how to be less certain with respect to your moral perspectives. Uh, you want to make the world a better place? Calm it down a little bit in your emo- emotional outrage and, and focus on trying to actually see the patterns that are occurring and that leads to this enormous suffering over and over again. And even better, try to understand what your own contribution might be in increasing that suffering, right? Is, it, is your behavior online, is your behavior as a consumer, is that actually adding to the problem? That kind of process of understanding the world is going to be more and more important with an ever more globalized world. It's also going to be harder, unfortunately, because of the advent of uh, social media and of technology, where we are basically being pushed into these echo chambers and we are being pushed into these hype moments where the only thing that matters is Israel and Palestine and we don't spend any attention to Afghanistan or Yemen or the DRC or Central, the Central African Republic. Uh, in that sense, um, the burden on our shoulders and the responsibility on our shoulders is becoming bigger and bigger to stay away from that kind of hype and emotional train and go back to the basics of what are the facts, 
what is actually the reality. This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the lack of attention on global conflicts. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side, Balder. Which closing quote did you pick for us today? I chose a quote from Albert Camus, the great Albert Camus, who wrote, The evil that is in the world almost always comes of ignorance, and good intentions may do as much harm as malevolence if they lack understanding. <laughs>